You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, good evening. Um, the next episode of 2 Corinthians uh, opens with 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. And we're going to take it through to chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 to 3, 6. And uh, the title for this evening's sermon that I suggested to David is, is What Do You Smell Of? Um, I don't know whether he ran with that or not, but or maybe that was just too much of a personal challenge. Um, but... Uh, what do you smell of? Uh, so 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12 to chapter 3 verse 6. Let's read God's word together. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, help us to to take in Uh, This evening we pray you would help us to understand uh, the words and the way they're structured and and what they're getting at and everything. Uh, But Lord we pray you would help us to receive uh, what your spirit uh, is still writing upon our hearts. And we ask that uh, your spirit would write on our hearts this evening uh, some particular thing that we need. Would give us the kind of uh, hearing that just uh, takes away from this time together something that 
your spirit wants us to be doing and some change, some encouragement perhaps for us, some, uh, some challenge, some, something just to direct our paths. We pray, Lord, we, uh, we regard your word uh, not just as um, an interesting set of things to listen to every week, but we regard it as food, as uh, food for hungry souls, as light upon our path as that which we need to know in order to do. We regard it, Lord, as as the very stuff of our discipleship, as you teach us to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Help us, Lord, and bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, Paul uh, has a very kind of interwoven way of writing. Uh, so if you, if you want to sort of understand the way to read Paul, um, we normally um, talk about Paul as being very logical and sequential in, his, in, in the way that he writes, which appeals to some kinds of minds and other minds find it a bit sort of whatever. But actually, um, Paul doesn't write in nice, neat, sequential blocks. He builds arguments, but he does so by interleaving stuff. So as you read through Paul's letters, he's always diving off at a tangent and then coming back in again. Um, Or he'll write one word and it sends him off and he comes back with the rest of the main thread of what he's saying. And um, he writes some very long sentences um, there are, you know, the, the bulk of some chapters in Romans, for instance, is basically just one sentence. Um, so this is the, the writing of a, of, of a man in the power of the Spirit whose mind is just teeming with stuff, uh, teeming with, 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 with the truth, uh, incredibly alive and alert to even the words that, that, that he's writing and, uh, under the, the power and influence of the Spirit. Uh, and that's what's happening here. We began uh, with the word, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. And, and uh, what's that about? Because that little first bit in verses 12 and 13, we're going to fa- pay fairly close attention to the text. So if, if you do have a Bible, switch it on and scroll through to uh, this chapter uh, or open it if you've got one of those. Um, and uh, and you, you will get way more edified this evening looking at the words on the page than you will looking at me. So you know, I, I'm not... I'm not going to be too desperate to, to be making meaningful eye contact with you all the time. I'd far rather you understood what's, what's on the page. So um, from 12 and 13 of chapter 2, what Paul is doing is basically resuming what he'd been writing about uh, when he started in chapter 1 verse 12 defending himself. Uh, there were people in Corinth who had come after Paul had preached the gospel there. He was there for some 18 months or so, um, who wanted to discredit Paul so that they could discredit his gospel. And they wanted to discredit his gospel because they were fundamentally opposed to the message of God's grace. And they were opposed to God's grace being for Gentiles So they had two big problems with the gospel because it's the gospel of God's grace and it was going to Gentiles. And the Judaizers who kept following Paul around and coming into places of of, of one hue or another basically were saying, look, you've got to to behave like part of the people of God, that is the Jews. Uh, You've got to do that stuff and then like the people of God, you will receive 
the deliverance of God when the kingdom comes and you will receive the grace of God. So you put yourself by your works, by your fulfilling of the commands and the demands of the law, you put yourself in a position where God will be gracious to you and will give you the blessings of the kingdom that are coming in the messianic age. Um, so what you need is, is more, we would pretty like this perhaps, and Paul does in several places, you, you need more works. And then when your works are sufficient, you'll get loved. And you'll get something called grace. Now, the people who were teaching that wanted to discredit Paul and his gospel. Um, and one of the ways they were doing it was to trash Paul himself. So they'd picked up on the fact, or some people in Corinth who had swallowed this line, had picked up on the fact that Paul had said he would come to them and hadn't done. Or at least he had intended to come to them twice. Once as he started on another missionary journey, and he would go to sort of the bottom bit to, uh, to, of, of, of the, well, to Achaia and then work his way up to Macedonia and then come back and then go back over to uh, well Ephesus and wherever so uh, he changed his mind and he'd gone up to Troas first and whilst he was in Troas or somewhere along the way he'd sent Titus to Corinth to find out how they were doing in response to previous communications and visits so they'd got Titus they hadn't got Paul um, Paul had said he was going to do something he wasn't and this, this had just caused such a disturbance so that um, Paul is anxious to know how they are and how they think of him and people have latched on to this change of plans and have said well you just can't trust Paul can you? you know, he's the kind of person who says one thing and does another you know, he makes a promise and never keeps it so what does that say about Paul's gospel really? You know? the gospel's all good news but, but well Paul was all good news and look what happened to him you couldn't trust him. Why could you trust his message? That kind of thing. So Paul begins defending himself uh, from chapter 1, verse 12. Not, so that, not because he is so important, but because the gospel that he's preached is so important. And so he's explained that he, chapter 1, verse 15, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. That's once on the way up to Macedonia and once then coming back. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. When I plan to do this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? Well, he changed his plans because... He had heard that they were, uh, they were not well disposed towards him. And so if he'd gone that first time, they'd have had another row and another thing. It would have just gone being difficult again. So for their sakes, he just went up to Troas and across and down. Visited them once. Took the Troas route to Macedonia. Now, that's what he's been writing about. And so now he kicks back into that in chapter 2, verse 12. Now, I went, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So he was waiting for Titus to get news of how they were. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. 
So he passed up the gospel opportunity in Troas because he was still, he still wanted to get down to Corinth. What he's saying is, look, guys, I have really loved you. You've been on my heart. You've been on my mind. I, I, didn't, I didn't sort of cancel the first visit because you mean nothing to me. You mean so much to me that, that I, I just couldn't settle in, up in Troas. There was a great opportunity for the gospel. But until I knew what was happening, I just couldn't settle. So I went over to Macedonia then. I'm going to start my way down and see you. So you see he's, he's saying to, to, to them, look, I, I really do hold you in my heart. I hold you with great affection. You mean an enormous amount to me. And, and don't, don't let these people trash me as if I don't care about you. So that's what he's saying in, in 12 and 13. He's referring back to that fact um, of one visit, not two. And he's trying to sort of cancel out the criticism that had been directed um, against him and believed by some of the people in Corinth um, that he was a guy who he just couldn't trust and he didn't really care. And then he says, and this is, this is sort of the first sort of meaty bit, if you like, of, of, uh, of, of, the, of the passage this evening, 14 through to 17. Uh, then he says effectively, but whatever. Um, now you, you would think, but thanks be to God, something is going to come. He's just saying, but you know, whatever, whether I come once or come twice. Whether I'm there or, you know, here or whether I'm going to come and see you first and all that, you know, whatever. Thanks be to God. Because actually it is God who is leading this mission. Not even me. Not me with my heart concern for the gospel. Not me with my heart concern for you. It's not actually being led by me. We, that is Paul and his companions, is being led by God. Uh, and what, what we have is uh, so clearly uh, the picture, and it crops up again and again through this passage, of a man who feels intensely and deeply what the Corinthians think of him. I mean, he's not a sort of a, you know evangelistic robot. He's not some kind of dispassionate gospel worker who, who just is all about the work. He's, he's just this human being. He feels it deeply. But actually, all his accountability is to God. All the reason he's doing his mission is because of God. All the strength and all the competence to do it comes from God. The whole thing is because Christ has conquered him. Now, elsewhere, Paul says uh, to, to the church in Corinth, look, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. And it's that logic which begins to run through the text from verse, uh, tw- verse 14 onwards. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. We belong to him. Or as I've just used the phrase, Christ has conquered me. I am his. Now that's what the triumphal procession is all about. So here we have uh, a reference to uh, a, a great, massive um, festival, just an absolute 
um, Rami and uh, a thing that will go on in large Roman cities, particularly in Rome. Um, but it would go on in, in major centers like Corinth as well. Uh, uh, the story would be that uh, uh, there has been a great battle. Um, uh, a general has, uh, in the Roman army has defeated a horde of uh, Goths or Visigoths or pagans or, I don't know, people from Edinburgh or Glasgow or something. I don't know what. And, and will lead the captives, uh, some of the captives, back to his city. And he would ride ahead uh, with some of his troops, and there'll be cheering crowds all around, throwing you know leaves and stuff and at them, and uh, who knows what else, all nice stuff uh, that is. And the the way would be paved with um, uh, fragrant leaves, flowers. There would be it would just smell amazing, um, great celebration. Behind the the general who would be getting all the honour. Uh, and his troops would be the captives. And there would be a representative number of people uh, defeated, humiliated, chained, enslaved, being dragged behind. So it's a, it's a very powerful drama. All the glory, all the weight of glory that goes on the general at the front is simultaneously a weight of dislike, contempt, despising of the captives at the back. Where do they go? Uh, He goes receiving all this honor and he would go to a temple uh, and at the temple would make a sacrifice and the sacrifice that would be made would not be chickens or goats or anything. It would be that lot behind. So those captives were being led to their death. And that death would be a thanksgiving to the general's favorite gods and basically a sort of a a demonstration of how powerful the general was and how powerful the Roman army was. Now that was called a triumph. Um, It gets triumphal procession, procession, but the whole thing was, was known as a triumph. And... That's the picture that Paul is, is, is using. It would be familiar to the Corinthians. Corinth was a major, major city. Corinth had major games. Um, it was known as a very wealthy city because of its function as a port. And it's, it's, it's lying at the junction of several trading routes. Um, it was just a, a really significant city. The triumph would be familiar to them. Paul is saying, that's us actually. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that that a Christian would put himself in the troops behind the general. But that's not the point in Paul's mind here. And that's not what the, the Bible wants us to think about ourselves at this point. We're actually the captives. What it means to be a Christian, in one sense... Ironically, because it it is also our dignity. But what it means to be a Christian is to have been captured by Christ. He has conquered you. You are not your own. You belong to him. And he calls the shots in, in life. He has conquered you and simultaneously... He has 
delivered you. And then Paul sort of drives the picture even more dramatically deeper as he identifies himself as one of those being led uh, as a captive. Because having been a captive to sin and now a captive to Christ, he has, he has, he has received that calling, come and die. You know what Jesus said, if anyone would be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So you're not delivered from a life of sin and self-indulgence to a life of getting off with it and self-indulgence. You're not delivered from captivity to sin to freedom to do what you want. We are delivered from captivity to sin to captivity to Christ. And that involves a death. Isn't it ironic that becoming a Christian does not give you a life of self-determination, self-authenticating, self-pleasing life? We are not delivered from sin and its death for self and our life. We are delivered from sin and death and self in that sense for Christ. So as John Stott once wrote, if you want a life of easygoing self-indulgence, keep clear of Christ if you want a life that just validates you by giving you everything you want and affirming you in every desire you possibly can have stay clear of Jesus because he's not for you that's, that's the kind of um, thinking if you like that is going on in the background of our passage So having mentioned the triumph, um, and in the triumph, these will be very sort of fragrant um, occasions, um, he uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. See it again from verse 15, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That's everybody. Uh, you're either being saved or you're perishing. Um, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, that is to the perishing, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Now what's this smelly preaching all about? What's, what does it mean to be a smelly Christian? Okay, I don't know, I don't know what you smell of. Perhaps it's, I don't know, Chanel number five um, or something, Brute 33. I think not these days. Some of us uh, in the room will remember the powerful odor of Brute 33 as worn before the school Christmas disco, which was an occasion redolent of the fires of hell itself for many people. Um, let's not go any further down that line. Um, what's he talking about? Okay, well, here's how the imagery works. Spreading the aroma means preaching the word of God. Spreading, preaching, the aroma, God's word. So just as a fragrance fills the room, 
Um, I don't know how many of you have got Christmas air fresheners already from Markey's or elsewhere or your favorite supermarket, but you get this sort of cinnamon, spicy, apple, gingery air fresheners that, you know, give the room a particular fragrance and you're a small spray and everybody gets the smell. It just spreads everywhere. Brownian motion and all that. So we are the aroma of Christ. It spreads everywhere as we preach the word of God everywhere. Now, the fragrance that Paul and his companions spread is the aroma of what? It's the aroma of the crucified Christ. And it is the crucified Christ who is being made known through the preaching of their gospel. So what's happening in a place like Corinth? In Corinth, some people, as Christ is preached, as Christ crucified, is held out to everybody. As the message of the cross is proclaimed, some people just see the cross and Christ's horrendous death. That's all they see. It is the aroma, a message about death. Horrible death. Couldn't possibly be God if he's on a cross dying, if you're a Gentile. Couldn't possibly be God if he's on a cross dying, if he's a Jew. Foolishness to one, the Greeks, an offense to the Jews. If all you're seeing when the gospel is being preached is a man on a cross dying a horrendous death, which seems totally pointless, ugly, and how could you have that at the center of your religion? Then you're seeing that because you cannot and do not want to see what else is going on. And the fact that that's what you see is a sign that you're, that you're already perishing, as, as, as Paul describes it in verse 15. All the, all, the, all the message of the gospel is bringing to you is this, this stuff about death, and it seems horrible. Surely God can't be in that, because God's very affirming and life-giving. But others are seeing, as we preach it, Paul is saying, as we preach the gospel, others are seeing the grace of the cross. What they smell, what they get aroma of is grace. And those of you who are into smelly stuff will know that there's a whole brand of it called philosophy. Any of you know that? That's very interesting. Okay, well, you go to John Lewis in Aberdeen, they've got a whole philosophy shelf, and it's all labeled with sort of really nice names. And one of them is grace, and there is a perfume called Grace, which is fantastic. You could buy a jar of grace. You could spray it all over the room and over yourself. You could go up to really horrible people and (laughs) zap them with some grace. Um, It wouldn't work. It would only go skin deep. But, you know, it's a nice thought. Um, Others see the grace of the cross. In Christ's death, they see a life-saving death. And the fact that that's what they see is an indication that they are already being saved. What you see when you see, figuratively speaking, the cross is an indication of where you are in relation to the God who sent his son to die that horrendous death upon the cross, to die your death. So this is, this, is, this is what it's like following Jesus. 
captive to his grace, captive to his lordship, captive to his commission. We spread the aroma of Christ. We preach the cross. And the cross decides, in effect, where people are. The cross is the great indicator of where people are in their response to it. And they're either going to see ugly, horrible, horrendous death. How could that possibly be of God? Don't want that. Perhaps because they're seeing their own mortality. Others see life and grace. They see their hope, their life. They see that he was dying their death. That he was bearing in his body on the cross everything that their own sin brings. So to one, we're an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And that distinction is not within Paul's strength. It's not within his his grasp. He, He can't make that distinction. It's not that when some people reject the gospel, Paul hasn't preached it very well. And when others accept, he must have preached it very well. He just preaches the gospel. He just preaches the message. This is the cross. This is what God has done for us in Jesus. Because this is what our sin had done to us. And the rest is between God and the people who are listening. But Paul is a captive must preach, must bear testimony, must do the work of the gospel, which is to proclaim it by both word and deed. And that is his primary accountability. His primary accountability is to the one who has captured him. And so, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. That is, we're not trying to make a packet of money out of doing this. And the way to make a packet of money out of preaching the gospel and doing great oratory and all that kind of thing is, in actual fact, to tell people what they want to hear. Um, the people who were coming in after, who had come in after him in Corinth were great orators. Uh, they were uh, very, very plausible. And they were, as we mentioned um, very early on in this series, they were reassuringly expensive. And people thought they must be getting something really valuable because they were being charged a lot for it. So these, these preachers would go in and, you know, here's my fee. And they would, oh, that's eye-watering. Like, that must be good. And we all know what it's like, don't we? If you've bought something, you then are sort of internally obliged to justify it because it's been expensive so you will tend to defend a purchase more when you think you've paid too much for it than you will yeah oh it's a really good no no that car's excellent no 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 it's not falling apart that's not rust and paul said we don't peddle the gospel for profit on the contrary in christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Now then he's, he's, 
he, he, he knows that even that is going to attract some um, criticism. By, when people read that out in the church in Corinth, they're going to be those who are saying, oh, well, he's, you know, he's talking himself up again. So are we beginning to commend ourselves? We come to the next sort of big meaty chunk of the passage, uh, which is all about preaching the new covenant. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? No, I said, how, how, how do we know that, that all this is genuine? How do we know that, that all this about preaching Christ is, and doing it before God, how do we know it's true? How, how do we know that, that we are not peddling the word of God for profit? How can you tell that we are in Christ speaking before God with sincerity as though saying, how do we know? He said, actually, you're the evidence. You are the evidence. You are the letter of recommendation. But it hasn't been written by us. Uh, it's been written on your hearts by God. Now from two onwards, Paul uses the language and he uses the phrase itself in, in verse 6. He's using the language of the new covenant. Now this is almost an evening in itself, just this little bit. And in fact it's going to begin to occupy us um, when we uh, resume at uh, chapter 3 verse 7. Um, uh, in at some point in the new year, um, I, I don't know which Sundays yet, but um, you'll probably find out before too long. Um, so, uh, what what is this new covenant, uh, and why is it so different from the old one? Well, um, there are two great covenants in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is two great covenants because Old Testament and New Testament. That word testament means covenant. So we've got the Old Covenant and we've got the New Covenant. Now, uh, what was the Old Covenant? The Old Covenant was the covenant that God made with his people through Moses and which they affirmed back to him. And that covenant was expressed in the commandments. But that covenant was how to live under a previous covenant. And the previous covenant was not do these things. The previous covenant was I will be and you will be. So the Moses covenant was the commands, ten and all the other things that followed in the book of the covenant and all the other rules and regulations that we have in um, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and spoken again in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. But God had already made a covenant, first of all, with Abraham, or Abraham as he was when he got the covenant. So from Genesis 12 following, we have this promise of God uh, which is summed up in the phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now that previous covenant um, with Abraham that from him would come a people who would occupy a land and God would make Abraham's name great. That covenant which is a promise from God, which is not a mutual agreement but which comes down from above. That covenant which is a statement of intent and of purpose from God. That covenant which is all promise. And it's got to be all promise, hasn't it? Because Abraham and Sarah can't have any children. You know, so that isn't a law, have children, because they can't. It's promise. I'll make a nation from you, and all nations will be blessed through you. See, that covenant is all promise. The people had just tried to make a name for themselves at the end of chapter 11 in Genesis. Babel. And God says, I will make a name. It's all promise. 
Now that Abraham covenant, um, you know, that I will make a, a nation from you and your know, peoples will be blessed through you, and all the nations will be blessed through you, that promise set up. It was a promise that was received by faith. It couldn't be earned. It was, it was a promise that was heard by Abraham and believed, and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. That promise set up a people for a land. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the one with Moses, was simply how you should live in the land as my people. It was simply the spelling out of, in, in, in legal terms, of what it would look like to be the people I'd promised in the land that I'd promised, bearing the name. It, it was never meant to be the thing that got you right with God. That had already happened, and so when... Paul is writing elsewhere. He says, you know, the, the, the law came 430 years after the promise. So we get God's promise to Abraham, and then we get, which is the sort of the, the, the first great sort of covenant that's going to go overarching right the way through to the end of the Bible, to Revelation 21. Within that, we get this Old Testament, Old Covenant, the Mosaic, that is the Moses Covenant. And the Moses covenant, even though the people said, yes, we'll keep it. The big thing about the Moses covenant is that it was broken. Again and again, day after day, year in, year out, they just kept breaking it. And so as we go through the rest of the Old Testament from from, um, Exodus 20 onwards... Um, we, we start to get, first of all, little hints and whiffs, and then uh, increasingly explicit promises from God that he will bring in a new covenant. And the new covenant will involve somebody who will fulfill everything that should have been fulfilled in the old covenant. So everything that God looked for from his people to express the fact that they were living with him in a relationship that he set up by promise, the Abraham covenant. Everything that God looked for from his people by way of obedience, by way of living it all out. Everything that they failed to live up to. Every command that they broke, every promise that they broke of theirs. Somebody would come along who would keep it all. Somebody would come along and in him there would be a new covenant. So that's why Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, as if the law was something bad, but to what? To fulfill the law. Not one jot or tittle, not the tiniest stroke of a quill of a Hebrew letter would be missed because Jesus came to do everything that people should have been doing in a relationship with God but were failing to do and not do all the bad stuff that they were doing So Jesus comes, not as it were to trash Moses and the law and the commandments, 
but in actual fact, to fulfill it all. And that's the new covenant. What is the new covenant about? It is about Christ fulfilling every human obligation to God on our behalf. So you hold yourself up to the, to the, to the, um, the measure of the old covenant and you ask yourself, am I, am I on that score? Am I righteous? Am I relating rightly to that law? Am I relating rightly to God? Answer, no, I'm unrighteous. And then you see Jesus and he relates rightly to the law because he relates rightly to God. He is righteous. He's called the righteous one in Acts and one or two other places through the rest of the New Testament. So now we come to God and we don't say, I can be righteous before God. We say, Christ is my righteousness. Everything that God needs from me, Christ has already offered. That's why his life, by the way, is so important. If all you have is Jesus who died for you, you've only got half a savior. You need his life because what we receive from him as he took our sin upon himself on the cross, what we receive in that great and glorious exchange is his righteousness. So Christ is our righteousness. And that's the new covenant in Christ. And that's what Paul has been preaching. If he'd gone about Preaching what those, that lot who come in afterwards, Judaizers have been preaching. He would have preaching, been preaching the letter, that is the law. But he hasn't been. He's been preaching Christ. And the evidence of the truth of what he's been preaching, the evidence of the truth of the new covenant, is that the new covenant promises have been fulfilled in the Corinthians themselves. They are the letter. Now why does he write in those ways? I'm going to read you um, two places in the Old Testament where the new covenant is prophesied. So first of all from Jeremiah 31. Uh, from verse 31 to, to verse 34. If you want to turn that up. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Um, and I'll just read that out. It says the days are coming declares the Lord. So he is speaking to his um, Old Testament, Old Covenant people under the Moses Covenant, you know, the, 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 the terms of the covenant lying shattered by their disobedience um, around them. Uh, God is looking at the, the, the rubble of their righteousness, because there isn't any. And he's saying, the days will come, looking ahead, when I will make, you know, this isn't going to be an agreement, this is another one from above, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Moses, command, you know, like we've been saying. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, 
Pick up on the phrase particularly, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So this is not an external code in the new covenant in Christ. It's not an external code which imposes upon us so that we are, we are obeying something external to us. In Christ, he writes it on our hearts so that the obedience comes from within. Our wills are changed. Now, so, you know, that writing thing on your hearts, keep that in mind. Turn ahead to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24. Ezekiel 36, 24. Here the new covenant promises um, in the context of God's exiled people being brought back to the land. Ezekiel 36, verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So now the same thing happening. So what we've got in Jeremiah is the writing it on your hearts and what we've got in Ezekiel is I'll put my spirit in you. What Paul does Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3 is he puts together the Jeremiah written on the hearts and the spirit of, from Ezekiel. He puts them together and in chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 3 he says, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. So you are the evidence that all the new covenant promises are being fulfilled. And they're being fulfilled because Jesus Christ died and we're preaching the message of the cross and you've believed it. You are the evidence that God is doing through Christ, preached in our gospel, what he'd always promised to do. And, and by the way, you are the evidence that those people who are duping you are wrong. You're the evidence that preaching the law is wrong and it will just kill you. And Paul gets the confidence to do that from God. And Paul gets the competence to do that from God. So where does that leave us? Um, it leaves us with three things. It leaves us with enormous hope. Enormous hope. Because um, it, is, it is in your own heart and in your own walk with God. As you find yourself amazingly wanting to do his will. And voluntarily doing that which pleases him and 
with your own volition obeying him and wanting to obey him, you, 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 you can have hope because you are seeing in your own life the spirit writing God's new covenant on your heart, God's law on your heart. When you know that it's from within, you know that's God. So when you know that your Christian life is not just doing what your parents want you to do, or not just doing what the rest of the Christians around you want to do, not just doing what is socially acceptable, when it's no longer an external thing that is impinging upon you, but it's an internal thing, then you know that God is writing on your heart, that you are new covenant evidence, that he is being your God, and you are being one of his people. And that, that should give you hope. Should give you hope. So that even though the devil comes along and accuses you of all the things you've done wrong and haven't done and all that kind of stuff, and even though some other people might condemn you, you've got the evidence that God is writing something on your heart. And only he can do that. Because the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, says the Bible. Naturally, our hearts would constantly veer away from him. But if, if, if the very seat of your will is Godward, only God does that. We don't. Social mores don't do that. The culture around us doesn't do that. Only God does that. Second, we not only have hope, but we face a challenge. And the challenge is to spread the aroma. Go and be smelly. Wash your feet, but continue to be smelly. Because that's what captives to Christ are supposed to do. Go and spread the aroma. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Let people know about Jesus. Hope. That challenge. And the third thing, and you'll get this, we're kind of working back up to the passage at this point. Just remember that you're dead. Just remember that you're dead. That is, the old self was crucified with Christ. He has conquered you. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. The Christian life is not about self-indulgence. Everything that our contemporary culture tells us, as it sets us up as consumers who are always king, Everything that it tells you will, will just ruin your Christian life. You died to sin. You died to self-sovereignty. You died to being king or queen. You died to being a consumer with God as the ultimate shop. You died to that. 
Um, let me remind you of something I think we said pretty early on in this series. You know, the, 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 the first question in the catechism, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, and, and there was a, a huge and um, loud and coherent proclaiming of the answer from the entire congregation, because um, you're free church. Uh, you might not have known that, but uh, I'm kidding. Um, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is good news. What we have done in our culture is our culture has seeped into the church and become kind of evangelically religiousized. Um, so you, what, what we actually function with, what our society teaches us and impinges upon us to function with, is a complete reversal of that. So we ask a different question. What is the chief end of God? You know, what's he there for? He better defend himself and justify himself if I'm going to worship him, hadn't he? What's the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify me and help me enjoy myself forever. That's what we've done. That's what human nature, fallen human nature, always self-referential, I'm the king of the castle. That's what it's done. What is the chief end of God? The chief end of God is to glorify me and help me enjoy myself forever. Now, if, 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 if you've got any of that in your idea of what it means to be a Christian and live the Christian life, just chuck it out. It's rubbish. It is politely dung. You died with Christ. You died to sin. You died to the ruin of self, which is its sovereignty. You're a captive. He has conquered you in order to free you from death. What I'm saying is hope, yes, wonderful. The challenge, spread the aroma, be a smelly Christian. But just get a grip of the truth and let the truth get a grip of you. You're dead. So now you can really live. Get real. Wake up and smell the coffee. You died to self as sovereign. You were captured by the king. And that, that is freedom. Real freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, which just always goes deeper than we think when we first read it and always lays us open as we think that we are opening it. Plant your word in our hearts, Lord, we pray. Write it upon our hearts every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk 
for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.